today on Against the Grain. Why do so many people who see themselves as progressive nonetheless support the state of Israel, considered an apartheid state for its treatment of the Palestinian population? Scholar Sari Makdisi argues that the answer partially lies in the Israeli state's active cultivation of Western liberal support. He discusses campaigns designed to particularly appeal to progressives, such as large-scale tree planting, creating museums to tolerance, and encouraging gay tourism, blocking from sight the ongoing dispossession of the Palestinians. He argues that support amongst progressives in the United States and Europe is slipping nevertheless. From the studios of KPFA in Berkeley, California, this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. What happens when a state projects itself as a haven of multicultural tolerance, democratic idealism, and ecological regeneration? And what if that same state is involved, and has been involved since its inception, in dispossessing and brutalizing its native population? as with the state of Israel. As my guest today argues, progressives have long been wooed by Israel, but their support is increasingly fraying. Sari Makdisi considers the ways that Israel has cultivated liberal support in his book, Tolerance is a Wasteland, Palestine and the Culture of Denial. He's professor of English and comparative literature at UCLA. You start the book, Sari, with a description of a hilltop on the west of Jerusalem, what it projects about the state of Israel and what it conceals. Can you describe it for us? The hilltop on the west of Jerusalem is Yad Vashem, which is the World Holocaust Remembrance Center. It's the it's the, the world's preeminent Holocaust museum, a memorial as well. And what's striking about it is that if you go out onto the, well, that the, the compound, first of all, is, is woven into the into the landscape, which is a obviously a very intentional and thought through uh, act, and it if you go and look out over the landscape from from the top of the center, looking out to the looking to the west, you'll see uh, forests that some some forestation. You'll see like a hillside, a valley, and then on the other side, a ri- another opposite hillside is a is a rising hillside with with trees on it. And if you look exceptionally carefully, especially if you have this question in mind, you'll see uh, older houses. So there's a there's a Israeli settlement that's built on that hillside, that's you know ugly 1970s or whatever concrete. You know, not nothing remarkable about it. But if you look carefully, you'll see older, much older stone houses. Kind of in, you can see glimpses of them sort of through the trees, and those houses are the ruins or what's left of the, the Palestinian village of Deir Yassin, which was the site of one of the most notorious massacres that took place during the ethnic cleansing of Palestine in 1948. So the book opens with this reflection of what it means that we have these two sites kind of facing each other, or one is, rather, one is facing the other. And one is all about commemoration and memorialization, and this should never happen again, and so on. Uh, meaning the Holocaust, and the other one is about an attempt to to render invisible, to cover up, to hide, to deny the existence of a site of another massacre, obviously smaller, but nevertheless a massacre of of uh, men, women, and children that took place in 1948 in the in the as as a key moment in the project of eliminating the indigenous population of of Palestine. Uh, in order to create an exclusively Jewish state in what had been a multicultural, multi-religious, multilinguistic uh, national space, and yeah, so that so it's like a, the the book begins with the irony of what it what it means that a site of of memory is face to face with a site of whatever the exact opposite of memory is: neglect, disappearance, denial, rejection, overwriting, rendering impossible, rendering unthinkable. And so that's where the book begins. Is, is that is that juxtaposition between between a site, but not just a site. It's between 
a project of memory and memorialization as opposed to a project of disappearance. Of course, Palestinians know all about Deir Yassin and they commemorate Deir Yassin and you can still go and pick out, you know, like the, the ruins of the of the village cemetery. You can still find it. It's it's kind of it's it's become something of a municipal garbage dump because the it's kind of it collects garbage there. Um, it's obviously it's, it's like almost all cemeteries, Muslim and Jew, Muslim and Christian cemeteries in Palestine. It's neglected and not tended to by the state, and if not altogether demolished, which is a whole other question which we can talk about later, which is. The, one of the most important Muslim cemeteries in Palestine that's that's subject to a particularly interesting project at the moment. So that's that that, is, that juxtaposition is very striking to me. Your book, Tolerance is a Wasteland, raises the question of why liberals and progressives in the West, in Europe and especially in the US, support Israel without consideration of the violence that led to the state of Israel being formed and its continued existence. And in trying to probe that question, you talk about how memory is erased in a way that is particularly effective, which is that it's not just a question of outright denial of the history that has taken place, but the affirmation of something in its place. And and you write how we might think of affirmation and denial as sort of polar opposites from each other. But you argue that in the case of Israel and its projection to the rest of the world, its self-projection, especially to a Western liberal audience, affirmation functions as a kind of denial. Can you tell us what you mean by that? Yeah, sure. So, and I can give a couple of examples to help to help make it less theoretical, less abstract, and more concrete. The question that the book opens with is: How can it be that people in the West, in the U.S. and in Europe in particular, um, but especially the U.S., who think of themselves and who have long thought of themselves as progressive on essentially every other question on the political spectrum? You know, let's say abortion rights, or the environment, or gay rights, or uh, you know, taxation or whatever name you know name whatever the the issue is and people it's 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 remarkable that a lot of people not everybody but a lot of people who are consistently liberal or on the left on most questions on the political spectrum when it comes to the question of Palestine many of them are support the Zionist state the Zionist project in Palestine and so it's always it's always kind of, it's you know the the slogan is pe- people who are progressive except on Palestine PEP. But the question is, how can it be that somebody who is a good liberal Western subject who believes in equal rights and, and you know, the separation of church and state and so on and so on and not, you know, doesn't believe in violence, etc. How can they reconcile their liberal values with their support for a state that was born out of a project of ethnic cleansing and exists to this day, not only on continued ethnic cleansing, but on a system of stark racial apartheid occupation, bulldozing people's homes, shooting children, and so on and so forth. How do you reconcile these two impossible, you know, con- this, this contradictory pair of set of affinities? And so one mechanism, of course, is for people who are good Western liberal subjects simply to deny what's happening in Palestine, what's been happening for the past 75 years, and just say, well, no, I don't, it doesn't happen, and I repress it, and I don't think about it, and so forth. And of course, yeah, it's possible to do that up to a certain point. But Palestine is constantly in the news, and it's it's hard to kind of escape, even sort of out of the corner of your eye, a sense of what's actually happening there. So just brute denial by itself doesn't really work all that well. So what these subjects are given instead, instead of just you know crude denial, is something to affirm that also enacts denial, right? So a, a, a positive value to affirm, the affirmation of which also helps uh, transact the kind of denial that we're talking about. And so let me give an example. So again, so this isn't so abstract. The example, I, one example I have in mind, it's the first chapter of the book, concerns the fate of the, the Palestinian villages that were demolished during and after the ethnic cleansing of Palestine. So as the Zionist militants and militias cleanse Palestine of almost all 90% of its native Palestinian inhabitants during the, in 1948, Afterwards, they're, they're, they're obviously these people left behind hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of villages where they had lived for 
you know, as, as long as anybody can remember. And uh, what happened was that this new putatively Jewish state had to get rid of these ruins. So they systematically bulldozed the villages and, and you know, just wipe, literally wiped them from the surface of the earth insofar as they could. But of course, that just leaves a landscape of ruin, which isn't exactly appealing to a Western audience, for example. And so what they did is they planted over the ruins of these villages with forests. So they, they planted trees through much of what had been historical Palestine. And the, in many cases, in fact, it, it's not a coincidence that many of the most prominent forests planted by the Jewish state after the creation of the state in 1948, particularly in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, continues to this day. We could talk about some ongoing examples if you want. But the, these forests were planted primarily over the ruins of Palestinian villages. And as you know, if, you, if anybody knows anything about the question of, of Palestine, knows that Israel loudly pronounces itself, proclaims itself to the world as a, as a mission to make the desert bloom and to make, to make the desert green and, to, and how wonderful it is for planting all these wonderful trees. And it, it raises money to, so that you can plant a tree there and you can have your little, you know, your name put on a ribbon around the tree and this kind of thing. And so now, now you can see where we're going, right? The, the trees are planted in order to cover up and deny the ruins of the villages of these people who had been expelled during the ethnic cleansing of Palestine. It's very, very hard to get good liberal Western subjects to support ethnic cleansing, which is what that is, or home demolition. It's much easier to say, hey, do you support the project of afforestation, planting forests where there's allegedly nothing but a barren landscape? And if, yeah, that sounds good. We can make the... You know, these days it's all about global warming and so forth, so we can contribute to help the environment and anyway, making the, the land green and planting and, you know, taking us back to the Garden of Eden, all this kind of stuff. It's very easy to get support for that. So people sign up for the support of greening the landscape, but what they're also signing up for is covering up the ruins of a, of a human catastrophe. And the affirmation of the greening the landscape is the denial. It's the flip side. They're like two sides of the same coin the denial of the Palestinian presence in Palestine and, of course, what happened to remove that presence, the violence that it took to get rid of the, the native population of the land and, and make it into this allegedly wonderful little democracy, which, of course, it isn't. And we could talk more about that as well, too. But that's an example, right? So you don't, you don't affirm ethnic cleansing. You affirm afforestation. Or in other chapters of the book, you affirm the value of a... Of a Jewish and democratic state, or you affirm the value of tolerance, or you affirm, you know, gay rights, for example. These are all different chapters of the book. And, but what you're doing in affirming all those things is you're also affirming willy-nilly, whether you're aware of it or not. Or, and the, the argument is you, you're probably at least partially aware of it. You're also affirming the opposite, which is the, the, the negation of the Palestinian presence and, and claim to the land. Well, we'll talk a whole lot more about some of the examples that you just mentioned briefly, but I wanted to ask you if the attempt to project the kind of values that Western liberals may grab onto as, as positives and reason to support the state of Israel, if that self-projection by Israel has been a conscious attempt by the state and those who work for the Israeli state to appeal to precisely those sorts of supporters around the world? I mean, partly, yeah. The more recent versions of this kind of thing, for example, there was a very explicit project of so-called pinkwashing in the 2000s that was a very, very clearly thought through strategy on the part of the state and the advocates of the state in the West to repackage Israel and, and claim that it is a paradise of gay rights compared to the alleged monstrosity of all the Arab countries allegedly hostile to gay rights and so on and so forth. I quote them in the book. They're very clear about, well, this will align us with gay rights in the West, and gay rights are seen to be a good liberal kind of topic, and so therefore it's very, you know, very canny, very strategic. That's a, a recent project, and it actually didn't work, I argue. But if you go back to the 1950s and 60s, there was a much, there are more subtle kind of attempts. There's Part of what's important here is that it's important to remember that support for the Zionist project and for the state of Israel was always stronger on the left, typically in Europe and in the U.S., than on the right, initially, for all kinds of reasons, right? So there's a sense of Israel as this wonderful little socialist paradise where you can go to kibbutz and you can, you know, 
wear Birkenstocks and eat granola and listen to poems of, of thus and such or read the, read the novels of Amos Oz or whatever, bask in this beautiful socialist paradise, that had a lot of appeal for people on the left in Europe and in the U.S. through the 60s and 70s. And that's sort of like this kind of, you might say, an almost organic attempt to kind of to connect these two cultures of liberal quasi-socialism and so forth. But of course, what gets covered up is, well, yeah, but whose land are these kibbutzes built on? Who pays the price for this kind of affirmation of wonderful socialist values, etc.? Who's excluded from them? Who's, what forms of denial are in play to transact this affirmation of, of wonderful socialist sitting around the campfire and singing songs and that kind of thing. And that's, of course, what's at stake in, in, in the project as well. So it's so sometimes it's more explicit, sometimes it's more formulaic, sometimes it's more strategically thought through, sometimes it just happens more organically. But however it happens, what's always at, at stake is a denial of what the Zionist project in Palestine is. And people who are socialist, who, you know, who should, I think, in principle, should ought to believe in, in human equality, shouldn't consciously support a system that is premised on inequality and injustice and, and a lack of sharing the resources of the land, for example. Those are, those are all antithetical to the principles of socialism, as I understand them. The book, by the end, says we're in a different moment now where, and we can see this happening all around us, support for the Israeli project is shifting rapidly from the left, or the liberals, if you want to use that language in America, to the right, Right, and it's more aligned these days with anti-immigrant rights and sort of militarism and the uses of the use of drones and this kind of thing. It's the, the ethos is shifting entirely. It's like a hundred and eighty degree turn, which is remarkable because I think it's disaffiliating from its pool of support in the West and shifting to another kind of area of support on the on the far right that may not be nearly as stable as the other one was for you know basically seventy years. And we'll loop back to that and also the kind of erosion of support for Israel in the last couple decades in some quarters. But let's stay for now with the question of how the Israeli state projects itself with all sorts of qualities that liberals elsewhere find appealing. And I should say that I'm speaking with Sari Makdisi. He's professor of English and comparative literature at UCLA, and we're discussing Tolerance as a Wasteland, Palestine, and the Culture of Denial. I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. So a few minutes ago, you mentioned this phrase that Israel is a Jewish and democratic state, frequently brought up in defense of Israel, and yet, of course, it's a contradictory term because, of course, a state for one group is, by definition, exclusionary. What has been the power of this term for those beyond the borders of Israel? Well, the power of the term, it's, it's quite remarkable. It's, it's something, that, like in the U.S. in particular, it gets affirmed by politicians pretty much across the spectrum, right? To sort, sort of, we believe in the value of a Jewish and democratic state. And it gets repeated again and again and again, like, almost like a magic spell. Like if you just keep saying it, something, something magical is going to happen by the sheer fact of repeating that particular phrase. And as you point out, Sasha, if you pause and think, but hang on, how can a state be simultaneously exclusive, it's a Jewish state, and inclusive, it's a democratic state? It can't, obviously, the answer is it can't be. It's either, you, a state can either be inclusive or it can be exclusive. It can't be both simultaneously. So there's a there's an obvious oxymoron at the very in in the slogan itself. But nobody pauses to think about the oxymoron. They just reaffirm the value of the wonderful value or the supposedly wonderful value of a Jewish and democratic state. And what that what that affirmation does is it 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 makes all of the contradictions and, and oxymorons and so forth disappear. And well what are those contradictions? How you know what how does this state function for its citizens who are not Jewish, for example, which is about 20% of the population of the state within its pre-67 borders, and of course half or more than half of the population of the state, of the territory over which the state exerts power, meaning when you include the West Bank, East Jerusalem, the Gaza, the Gaza Strip, and so on, the, the roughly, roughly equal uh, populations of Jews and non-Jews there. And what happens is, well, I mean, obviously it's apartheid, the historical affirmation of the value of a Jewish and democratic state as a kind of liberal principle, it held sway all through the, the 1980s and 90s and on, you know, on pretty much to our own time, except that in the past 
several, really like the past three or four or five years maybe, and in particular since this most recent Israeli government took office, it's been very, very clear that this state is not interested in democracy and the, 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 the literally government ministers and so forth are themselves saying, we're not interested in democracy, we're interested in, in these other kinds of values. But in a nutshell, the, the affirmation of a Jewish and democratic state covers up the flip side of that, of the, the other side of that same coin, which is, of course, an apartheid state. And we could talk about the details of how Israeli apartheid functions inside the, 60, the pre-67 borders and outside those borders, and it, it kind of crosses the borders. And a great there's been several recent studies about Israeli apartheid, so this is hardly an original claim any longer. But yeah, that's part of what's going on. Well, why don't you say a little more about that and how what functions on the ground in Israel and the occupied territories aligns with a definition of apartheid? The basic premise of apartheid, and it's not, again, it's not a term that we should just use wantonly or as a kind of emotional accusation. The, the term is defined precisely in the apartheid convention, which has you know, the status of international law. So you can look up what the definition of apartheid is, and it, it, it basically is a system of government that discriminates according to various kinds of criteria, including religion and national origin, and, and there's a whole, you can go look at the details of the text if, you, if you're interested in the details, but basically what it means is a, is a systematically discriminatory state. Now, if you look at what's, hap what's been happening since 1967 in the territories that, that Israel captured in the 1967 war, meaning East Jerusalem, the West Bank, and Gaza, it's very, very clear that there's a, a very rigid distinction between the Jewish and non-Jewish populations of those territories. For example, the Jewish settlers in, let's say, in the West Bank or in East Jerusalem are subject to Israeli civil law. They're guaranteed the protections of Israeli civil law, whereas Palestinian residents in exactly the same territory are subject to Israeli military law. So there's like literally two different systems of law for two different populations inhabiting the same territory. There's different housing, there's different road systems, different schooling systems. I mean, 100% segregation between the Jewish and non-Jewish population of the occupied territories. It's in the occupied territories, this is like, it's a total no-brainer. It's, I mean, it's very, very obvious what's happening. President Carter said it in his book in 2006, I think it was, to, to outrage, which, is, which we can come back to. But it's very obvious. When you cross the border into pre-67 Israel, things are more subtle. There still is essentially total exclusion and total separation of the two populations, but it's done much more subtly than, let's say, the apartheid state in South Africa did it. So, for example... In South African apartheid, there would be laws saying specifically, you know, blacks have to live in this area and whites have to live in this area. And, and it, was, it was spelled out very explicitly. Inside pre-67 Israel, there aren't exactly any such official or legal pronunciations. But what there are instead are a series of a combination of formal and informal mechanisms that, that make sure that Jews and non-Jews by and large can't live in the same space. There are some exceptions that they're they're very small in the so-called mixed cities, but even then there's extreme forms of segregation. So they're really, by and large, there's total separation. So for example, most of the land of the state is state-owned land. And if you're somebody who's not Jewish and you want to rent or lease, or you can't buy, but rent or lease land that's owned by the state, you are not able to do so because you're not Jewish. Whereas somebody who is Jewish, who's not a citizen of the state, for example, even, obviously if they are citizens, this also works, but even for non-citizens, they have access to land because it's held in the name of the Jewish people by, for example, the Jewish National Fund, for instance, among other institutions. Uh, they have access to this land even though they're not citizens of the state. So here you have a state in which people who are not citizens have more access to land resources than people who are citizens strictly on the basis of national identity or religion or however you want to define the distinction there. But the point is, there's a structural form of discrimination. And we can go up and down through the whole system. So when a new citizen is born, for example, in the, in the Israeli state, they are entered into the population registry, and somebody who is, who is Jewish is entered as what the state calls a Jewish national. And somebody who's not Jewish is entered as a whole, there's a whole bunch of other nationalities, but the point is they're not Jewish. And that's really what matters because in Israeli law, there's a distinction between nationality, which is something that only Jews can have, and citizenship, which is something that's more open, but the various rights that the state accords tend to go on nationality rather than mere citizenship as such. 
And so, for example, there's, as I said, housing is largely segregated. The educational systems are largely segregated. There are two different educational systems for Jewish and non-Jewish citizens of the state. I'm talking about the state within its 67 borders. As I said, in the West Bank, it's more obvious, but inside the state, too, there's totally discriminatory educational systems that separate and treat and invest in the education of Jewish versus non-Jewish citizens in totally different ways. The state invests, for example, three or four times as much in educating a Jewish citizen as it does a non-Jewish citizen, and so on and so on and so on. According to Israeli law, if you're Jewish and you want to marry somebody who's non-Jewish, you can't do it in the state. It can't be done. There's no institution of civil marriage. So that these forms of discrimination and separation and segregation are reinforced across the generations. But all we hear our politicians in the West talking about are the wonders of a Jewish and democratic state. Where is this Jewish and democratic? There's a Jewish state. As a Palestinian politician once pointed out, the state is it's democratic if you're Jewish, and it's a Jewish state if you're Palestinian. You don't have access to the, to the democratic functioning of the state there. And again, to add to what's been going on in the past two or three years, there's a number of major reports on Israeli apartheid published, for example, by the United Nations. Uh, there's a, there's a, a branch of the United Nations called ESQA, the Economic and Social Commission for Southwest Asia. They published a major report a few years ago, and then both Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch have also published major you know, a couple hundred page reports that detail the system of apartheid inside pre-67 Israel and in the occupied territories. And all these reports also make a really super important point too, which is that essential to the, the functioning of Israeli apartheid is the separation of the Palestinian people into these different groups. For example, the biggest single group of Palestinians are the ones who were forced into exile in 1948. They've never been allowed the right to return to their homes in Palestine. I'm speaking with Sari Makdisi about his book, Tolerance is a Wasteland, Palestine and the Culture of Denial. You can find a link to that book on our website, againstthegrain.org. He teaches English and comparative literature at UCLA. Well, let's loop back to what you referenced a bit earlier, which is the attempt by the State of Israel to present itself to the world and especially to liberal and progressive supporters as an icon of gay rights in contrast to the purportedly homophobic rest of the Arab world. Can you tell us more about how Israel tried to achieve that status as a paragon of gay rights and how successful they were in wooing liberal and progressive support? Well, we could, let's start with with the, with the latter question. The good news is it wasn't successful at all. It, it was, a, I think, it was a dismal failure. And what's interesting about it is this was a, you know, in contrast with let's say the the planting of forests over the ruins of Palestinian villages or this, the mantra of the Jewish and democratic state, which go back, which have a much longer kind of heritage. This project to proclaim Israel as a as a gay, as a gay paradise, basically, but you know, like this this the you know a paragon of gay rights and so forth. And by the way, I should point out strictly by gay, I mean gay men specifically. I mean, the lesbian rights are much more kind of occluded for various reasons that we can get into. But it's principally it's market. It's been marketed as a, as a you know, for example, a vacation destination for gay men specifically. And the connection just to anticipate that has to do with the army and with the marketing of the army also as a, as allegedly a, a paradise for for gay men. Um, so the the project was was thought was systematically thought through and it involved the it involved American uh, marketing firms who were who were who volunteered their services, uh, American and British marketing firms like Saatchi and Saatchi, for example, among others, um, who volunteered their services to help kind of promote Israel as this, as a primarily as a kind of gay vacation paradise for one thing, and so there were this kind of you, you start seeing in the in the in the mid to late 2000s, poll after poll after poll talking about the best gay cities in the world, right? And so you would get Berlin and, and but you know, that what you'd, what you'd find out is that, for example, Tel Aviv starts topping all of these charts all of a sudden. San Francisco seems to drop off the radar, which is remarkable. And what you get is, is Tel Aviv seems to suddenly be the, the, the most amazing gay city in the universe. Now, 
do are there you know are there gay beaches in Tel Aviv? Yes. Are is there a certain degree of freedom for gay people in Tel Aviv? Yes, it's true. As soon as you go much beyond Tel Aviv, the story is entirely different. But that's not the, you know whether or not there are gay rights is not the point. The point is how is this 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 proclamation of gay rights in Tel Aviv used to you know used for a much more cynical kind of political project? And as I said, yeah, that was done from the beginning, partly to claim. That there are no Palestinian, that there are no Palestinian gay or queer people, and partly also, of course, to claim that Palestinians are homophobic, that Arabs in general are homophobic, and so therefore we get this this contrast between this shiny, wonderful, homophilic Israel as opposed to the the ban, barren, terrible, despotic, Orientalist, Muslim, Arab, homophobia, right? And so that that contrast is is what's is becomes central to this whole project. Now, the reason why it failed is that very very quickly. You know, along with attempts to market Tel Aviv as this wonderful gay paradise, uh, we get a response by international gay and queer groups, as uh, and then very, very vocally as well, Palestinian queer and gay groups as well, who who push back against this this notion. And and you know, for example, when there's attempts, for example, to to include Israeli and you know Israeli participation in let's say gay pride festivals and certain parts of the world, there are immediate responses by local gay, like, for example, Toronto, to name one case, local gay or queer groups push, resist the inclusion of, of an Israeli, uh, you know, participation in, in, in let's say, a, a gay pride parade, for example, on the basis that this is also, it's not just, you know, whether or not their gay rights is immaterial when we're talking about an apartheid state, because we have to take into account the larger political context as well, and the ways in which, or the extent to which, gay rights are being used in this particular instance, to or here it is again, like the larger argument of the book, right? We can, but the affirmation of gay rights is the flip side of the coin. The other side of which is the denial of Palestine and the, and the kind of really the affirmation of apartheid, in effect, right? So it's the it's a it's a coin that has these two sides. The the shiny side is the one that people are shown. The less the the more obscure side is the one that's engaged with. A process of denial. Sorry, Makdisi, you write in the book Tolerance is a Wasteland about how in 2007 Los Angeles's Museum of Tolerance announced it would commission the architect Frank Gehry, globally recognized architect, to build a Museum of Tolerance in Jerusalem. Tell us about how that all unfolded. Uh, it's a it's a remarkable story, but the and a long story. But I'll, I'll give you the sh- the shortest possible version. And so the the short story is, the the Jerusalem municipality told or or offered a lot, which they said was a parking lot, to the Simon Wiesenthal Center, which is based here in L.A. It's the it runs the Museum of Tolerance in L.A. to build this Museum of Tolerance branch, if you want, in Jerusalem. And uh, the museum proclaimed very loudly that the lot is just, as I said, just an empty parking lot. But it turns out that the parking lot was built partly on the ruins of a Muslim cemetery, the, the, the biggest and most important Muslim cemetery in, in all of Palestine, Mamilla Cemetery. And anyway, it spilled over way beyond the parking lot itself into really, you know, where there, there are graves and so forth and, and uh, in, in the rest of Mamilla. And so what happened was the museum began excavating a cemetery, uh, in or- a Muslim cemetery, in order to build a shrine to what it called tolerance. Which And just, I mean, if you just pause there, like you really, I, what more does one need to say? I mean, that you're excavating the bodies of one group in order to build a shrine to proclaim the, the not just the wonderfulness, but the tolerance specifically of another group of people. And it's kind of like it's breathtaking in its audacity and, and, and so forth, its total lack of irony. Uh, you know, it's kind of remarkable. So they hired Frank Gehry to build a design for this building, and and Frank Gehry came up with designs, and and it was like, oh, why well, we're going to have Frank Gehry is going to build this amazing museum that's all about tolerance, and of course, that what they weren't talking about, or were trying to repress as much as possible, is the site on which the museum is being built, which is, as I said, a Muslim cemetery, and of course, most the Muslim community in Palestine, Palestinians who aren't Muslim. Um, we're, we're, you know, we're protesting this from the beginning. Like, how can you build a museum of any kind, let alone a museum of tolerance, on somebody else's graveyard? I mean, I personally know people who, with family members buried in this graveyard. It's, it's been, it was in active use until 1948. Um, you know, how, how could this be? And of, of course, they, they, their protests were repressed and hushed up and so forth. And, 
And so, yeah, so what happened was Gary came up with the design, but then the 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 furore, there was a scandal, obviously, but finally, no matter how much they tried to repress it, it broke out into the open. I published a piece about it in the Journal of Critical Inquiry, and the journal invited Frank Gary to reply, and there was we had a kind of unpleasant exchange in, in print in, in, in the journal, but and the Museum of Tolerance people also tried to reply, which was, I thought, kind of comical. Um, but anyway, so the, what the long, the long and the short of that is that Frank Gehry ended up pulling out of the project altogether, and then they found another architect, and then they had to fight with that guy, and they found a third firm. So anyway, they're building this this alleged shrine to tolerance on top of a desecrated cemetery uh, that they have that they desecrated in order to build this shrine to tolerance. But the but it gets better because the most amazing thing is that what they like what they are. In their marketing literature, if you look at what they what they say, well, you know what is what is this when they say tolerance? What exactly does that mean? Because, you know, what tolerance has has the, the, you can look at the word up in the dictionary. But what it turns out to be, if you look at the content of their exhibitions, it's all about it's Zionism. Basically, it's it's a museum of Zionism, but it's Zionism that's been in this case marketed, rebranded, if you want, as tolerance. Right. So Zionist Zionism, is, according to them is a project of tolerance, whereas, of course, incidentally, if you criticize Zionism, of course, that makes you intolerant, right? That's kind of the, the subtext there. And so all the exhibition spaces are all about basically representing the Zionist project and the Israeli state as kind of the telos, the, the, the end point, the, the ultimate destination, not just of, you know, the, the past hundred years or whatever of of European uh, Jewry, but as the the telos of of all of Jewish life and all of Jewish culture. Basically, it's like we we've always been going down this path to take us to Zionism as the as the ultimate expression of 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 the Jewish faith. Which is, of course, uh, there's a lot of resistance to that in in the Jewish community, and and it, uh, that goes without saying, I think, right? But it's amazing that they've that they've not just that this act of desecration took place over many 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 years. But that the fundraisers for the, the funding for this project came heavily from, again, very liberal circles in in Hollywood and in, in L.A. Right, the the, the uh, and and the, you know the people affiliated with the Museum of Tolerance. Um, so yeah, what's remarkable about that is this is this sense of the 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 astonishing project to build a museum that claims to be about tolerance, but really is about Zionism on top of another people's desecrated cemetery and to have no shame, no embarrassment, no, oh, you know, whoops, we got it wrong. No, on the contrary, plowing ever further, proclaiming ever more loudly the project of tolerance. And of course, that's what got my book project. That's where the, the book came from is this, is this unbelievable, literally unbelievable project that, that, uh, that says so much about what's going on in Palestine. So you've been describing these various ways that the state of Israel has projected settler colonialism and, and sort of twisted it, changed it, altered it into a kind of affirmative vision of a society that is tolerant, that is pluralistic, that is democratic, that is open to people of different stripes. And yet you've talked about how both liberals and parts of the left have been swayed by this over decades. You note you know, the support for the state of Israel from such luminaries as W.E.B. Du Bois and James Baldwin, Martin Luther King, Jean-Paul Sartre, Michel Foucault. So there is this history for sure. But you also talk about how, as with the case of the pinkwashing, that sometimes these efforts are not successful. And I wanted to ask you how this broad attempt to foster affirmative support for Israel from liberals, progressives, even people who might otherwise identify as on the left, has weathered the erosion of support for Israel around the world in the last decade and a half heightened by the bombardments of Gaza in 2008, 2009, and again in uh, 2014, all very highly publicized. What is the solidity of support for Israel now? Oh, I think it's on the left and among liberals. I think it's slipping. I think it's slipping very, very, very fast. Um, because the, the bombardments of Gaza are a big part of it. I mean, it you know, again, 
the Israelis can say whatever they want to say, but when people watch, a, you know, a big city like, for example, Gaza City, when they know there's, there's, you know, most of the people who live there are children, and it's being bombed relentlessly. It again, it doesn't take fifteen PhDs to figure out what's happening. You can see what's happening with your own eyes. You can trust your own eyes in a way, no matter what the narratives that that the Israeli state are giving you. It's obvious to anybody what's happening there. Right? You could tell right from wrong at you know at a single at a single glance, and that the Israelis keep doing this sort of thing does them more and more and more damage. Of course, it's killing and hurting Palestinians on a much greater scale, but it's doing damage to their to their own cause. But the other, even more remarkable thing is is the fact that all of these forms of denial that the book talks about, the Israelis have been stripping off those forms of denial in in very recent years. For example, in 2018, they passed this, a, a law, a new law called the Jewish Nation State Law, that 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 basically, you know, all of the kinds of all the forms of apartheid and so forth that I've been talking about that operated within the state in very in pretty nuanced and subtle terms. They were still there, but they were kind of, as I said, they weren't as baldly stated as in the South African case of apartheid. They were done subtly. Um, they they were saying no. Basically, they were make, they made all those forms of of, of apartheid and exclusion. They made them what had been implicit became much more explicit. So they were they were proclaiming it themselves. So it's like you did again. You didn't even need to interpret this stuff. It's, they were saying it themselves that, for example, only Jews have rights in this space. And the election of the most recent government, which is the most right wing in in the country's history, uh, has has made this again. They've, they're stripping off all all forms of the, the the kind of denial that they used to that they used to work so hard to kind of inculcate and 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 spread and disseminate and so forth. So. The new prime minister is saying very openly, only Jews have rights, have a claim to all of what of what they call the land of Israel, which means not which means all of historical Palestine, which means pre sixty seven Israel, plus the West Bank, Gaza, East Jerusalem, and so forth. And and basically, the government itself is saying that only Jews have rights there. So I mean, at that point, when you add that to these new apartheid reports to the images of the bombardment of Gaza, to the relentless Israeli shooting of children and, and, and civilians and journalists like Sharina Abu and so forth, you're, you're like, with the, the, there's it be even, you know, no, nobody can deny it anymore. It becomes impossible to deny what they themselves are anyway now actually affirming. So what the Israelis are doing, what they've been doing is, instead of seeking to solicit and deepen their historical ties with the, with the left and with liberal culture in general, they are now much more assiduously working to ally themselves with the right, with the revanchist right, right? So, in other words, anti-immigrant, hostile to Black Lives Matter, hostile to, to, you know, to indigenous rights and so forth, and, and explicitly embracing a logic of explicit, I want to really emphasize that point, explicit apartheid rather than implicit, you know, sort of, carefully nuanced apartheid right it's become much more open and i think i think where we're going is kind of obvious people even support historical supporters of the state and of the project in the us are expressing their horror at the most late, at the latest government because at the current government because of, because of these kinds of things but of course the irony there is it's like what's happening yeah what's happening is terrible but it's it's as i said it's just a more explicit version of what's been happening with the past 75 years. There's nothing new here. What's new is that it's the state is uncovering all those layers of mystification and denial, which made it hard for liberal subjects in the West to see what it was that they were supporting when they were going to plant a tree in Israel and this kind of thing. Now you can't, there is no more denial. It's it's out in the open. So yeah, I don't, I think, personally, I think they're making a mistake, which suits my purposes fine. But I think that's what's happening. They're, it's, it's, they're, they are shifting their, their basis of support from liberal leftist culture to right-wing racist culture, explicitly racist culture. And I, no doubt they made a calculation that that's in their interest. We'll see, obviously. I mean, I, I would assume that the, the more they do that, the more people of good conscience around the world will take matters into their own hands the way they did in the case of the fight against apartheid in South Africa and support the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement, which is which is moving from strength to strength, because exactly as I said, as the Israelis continue to strip off the layers of denial and the fig leaves that had shielded them for all these years, what they are about becomes much more obvious, and it becomes obvious to any citizen of goodwill around the world what position they ought to take on this question. 
I wonder if you could return to something that you spoke about earlier in the program, which is the historic support of progressives and some leftists for the state of Israel. Out of what did that come and how would you trace its fortunes? I mean, you're, you're saying now that in some ways it's fraying, but if you were to characterize that support, what generated it in the first place and what sustained it? Part of what generated it in the first place, particularly on the left in Europe, especially Europe, but also the U.S., is guilt over the Holocaust, right? And, you know, and of course, I think Europeans, obviously, particularly Germans, are right to be guilty about the Holocaust. But of course, that was something that's something that they should atone for through themselves, not by by kind of projecting their guilt onto onto Palestinians and making the Palestinians pay the price for for German guilt. But so that's one element. But the but the other elements are a historical relationship between uh, the Zionist socialist left. So Zionism is is a complicated movement. There's you know right wing forms of Zionism and allegedly left wing, like that is to say, socialist forms of of Zionism. And for much of Israel's history. The Labour Party, which is the allegedly left-wing party, I say I, I say allegedly because on the, obviously on the question of Palestine and Palestinians, the left and the right in Israel are in in lockstep. They they are all about the denial and repression of Palestinian rights, but on you know social matters and economic matters and so forth, there you can still distinguish the left from the right more or less, and so there were deep sort of uh, party affinities and intellectual affinities between the so-called Zionist left and the left the, the international left. And that, that's where that's where that sense of affiliation came from. So the, the kibbutz project, you know, where the kind of marketing of the kibbutz as a kind of socialist paradise had a great deal of appeal to a certain generation of the European and American left in the 19, let's say the 1970s, for example. I mean, I know people who on the left who went to work to live for a summer on a kibbutz because how wonderful it is, as I said, to go there and, you, you know, you get to... To, to plow the land and this kind of thing, and and, you, and then at night you get to have a, a campfire and and you know sing the songs of Amos Oz or whatever, and and that 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 kind of stuff had a great deal of appeal to a certain generation of the left, but that's history, I think, at this point, and what people can see for themselves increasingly is is a is a crude, raw, naked, unabashed, unapologetic apartheid project that is proclaiming itself increasingly as such. And as I said, stripping off all those layers of denial that sustained it for seven decades or more. Let me end by asking you about the UK. In the US, the Democratic Party has historically been the party of support for Israel, although as you've noted, not that the Democratic Party has stopped that, but Israel kind of turns increasingly to the right and Republicans and Christian backers have been important uh, support for the state of Israel. But the Labour Party in the UK was one place where questions of opposing Zionism became very central and led to a lot of destruction within the Labour Party. How do you make sense of what took place there? And I'm talking about the attacks on people like Jeremy Corbyn and Ken Loach and Ken Livingston, who had people of the left who had opposed Zionism. What do you make of what took place within the Labour Party in the context of the larger argument that you're making about the support by liberals or progressives for the state of Israel? I mean, that's a complicated question, Sasha. A lot of it has to do with internal dynamics within the Labour Party in Britain itself, which has which has to do with the kind of the gradual dispossession of a genuinely left-wing version of labor and its replacement by a kind of neoliberal uh, Blairite version of labor, basically. So this, a lot of it doesn't have to do with Palestine at all, but it's obviously partly to do with Palestine. And what it has to do with is this, is the eruption of what was what was identified and whipped up by newspapers like The Guardian as allegedly a, a, an outbreak of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. And it turns out, of course, that most of the anti-Semitism that people refer to has to do with criticism of the Israeli state and its policies by people like Ken Livingston and Jeremy Corbyn and so on, and and not with actual anti-Semitism. And as, as I'm sure you know, there's been a, a very concerted effort in recent years to redefine anti-Semitism to include criticism of the Israeli state, which is, of course, not anti-Semitic. Not, you're not being anti-Jewish if you, if you criticize an apartheid state for being an apartheid state. Right? But there's this attempt to rebrand anti-Semitism 
around a new definition that would include criticism of the Israeli state. So what happened in the in, in that particular instance of the Labour Party is that the the critics of 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 the Israeli state and its policies were 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 targeted as as allegedly as anti-Semites and on that basis purged from the party. So it, what's ha- what happened there, you know, as I said, there, there are particularities within the party itself that go way beyond just the question of Palestine. But that's partly what we see in that instance is the weaponization, this attempt to weaponize anti-Semitism, and that attempt, that project is also very much ongoing in the U.S. as well. An attempt to get, for example, I, obviously I teach at a university. There was a major concerted effort a few years ago to to get the University of California system to redefine anti-Semitism in order to include criticism of the Israeli state, such that somebody, a professor or a student who, critis- who dares to criticize military occupation, home demolition, the targeting of children, apartheid, etc., somebody who dares to criticize those things could be, if that, went, if that had gone through, rebranded as an anti-Semite and therefore as a purveyor of hate speech and therefore banished from campus, basically. So what we're seeing is an attempt, a concerted attempt, to simply smother any attempt to criticize the Israeli state by rebranding it as anti-Semitism. And this project has a great deal of institutional support because it's, it's backed by a number of institutions and it is extraordinarily repressive and dangerous and a violation of academic and intellectual freedom of all, of all sorts. And yet that's, what was, that's part of what happened at the Labour Party. The point I want to end on, though, is that the reason why the, the advocates of apartheid in the U.S., for example, or in Europe, for that matter, are so keen to abolish any critique of the Israeli state from the academy or from journalism or from public representation is that they know the game is lost. They know they've lost all the arguments. They know people know what's going on. And so the only way they can stop criticism by, at this point is to banish it altogether, to suppress it, to make to make it illegal, basically, to criticize the state of Israel and its policies. I don't think they're going to succeed. The, I have to say, in Europe, they've they've gotten further than the, than they have so far in the U.S. For example, in Germany, it's and in France to a certain extent, it's essentially illegal, all but maybe not literally illegal, but tantamount to being illegal to criticize Zionism. I think they'd like to have that in the U.S. too. But we have a tradition of free speech in this country that that makes it much more difficult to enforce these kinds of. Uh, principles in the U.S. compared to Europe. Sorry, Mac DC. It's been a pleasure having you on the program. Thank you. Thank you, Sasha. Thanks for the extraordinary, thoughtful questions. It was a, a wonderful conversation. Sari Makdisi is author of Tolerance is a Wasteland, Palestine and the Culture of Denial. That's published by UC Press and at againstthegrain.org. You can find a link to that book. He's professor of English and comparative literature at UCLA and his other books include Reading William Blake. You've been listening to Against the Grain. I'm Sasha Lilly. Thanks so much for listening, and please tune in again next time.